This is Corkscrew Convos, another theme park podcast. My name is DJ. And my name is Chris. And we're here to talk about theme parks, roller coasters, barbecue, a challenge, the theater, and everything else under the sun in its time. But first, let's get the disclaimer out of the way. The views, opinions, and information expressed during the following presentation are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent organizations affiliated with those individuals. Now, DJ, it's been a busy couple of weeks for me, and <laughs> I think that's just because it's summer. I mean, it's natural for things to pick up in the summer season and for the hours to get longer, the days to seemingly get shorter as I look for things to do. But you told me right before we started recording that you did something that was many years in the making, something that I did first in 2019, uh, and you finally caught up to me. What is that? Well, I finished a certain movie that I promised you I would eventually watch, and in a way, I even promised the dear listener that I would eventually watch this movie, the series of movies. Skyfall. I finally, James Bond. Not Bond. Skyfall. Not oh. Skyfall. What I did, Chris, is I completed the MCU Phase 3. I watched Endgame. Wow. Okay. Now, why were you so late? I mean, this is not a criticism of you. I'm just curious. You did not go to the theater for these movies during their first run. Is that right? Somewhat. I um, I saw Captain America when that first came out. When was that? 2011? Yeah. Okay, so I, I saw Captain America... This is coming off the heels of The Dark Knight. I think The Dark Knight Rises even. And I'm thinking, oh, you know, it's fine. I did not ever see Iron Man. I had never seen Thor. Um, and I believe those came out before Captain America, correct? Yes, I think so. Right around the same time. So I think that was before we really got an idea of all of these movies meshing together. I don't know if I was just so old that I didn't... Not say I didn't care anymore, but I think I had seen Green Lantern before this. I was like, ah, I think I'm done with the whole superhero movie thing. And so I'd seen Captain America, at least. Well, Green Lantern, that film, I think, of 2011, could have turned anyone away from movies in general, I think. (laughs) I know that that movie has been picked apart for more than a decade now, but I hope that you wouldn't hold the superhero genre to task for what the Green Lantern was, because that was, ooh, that was something. I saw it once in the theaters, and uh, I never care to see it again. <laughs> but I'm glad that you've finally seen Endgame, DJ. I think Morbius Nation might have taken the spot of Green Lantern now at this point, but I had also seen Iron Man 3 without seeing the first two Iron Men. Uh, okay. I, <laughs> I had seen Age of Ultron without seeing the original Avengers, and I had seen Doctor Strange because I really like Benediction Cucumber. He's one of my favorite actors, so I had to see that movie. But I've gone through, I've rewatched them all, I'm doing it in order, and so it took me three separate viewings, but I finally finished Endgame. Have you watched the television series is now? No, so that's up next. I think that's okay. phase four. So I believe WandaVision is, is next, according to Disney Plus's order. Now, that's going to be interesting to, to see for you because I, and this will be interesting for everybody moving forward, I don't know how crucial those TV shows are going to be for the MCU films moving forward. I know that 
Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness had Wanda in it, and it had Doctor Strange in it. I'm not going to give you any spoilers, uh, but I know WandaVision, of course, uh, had a, a strong feature of Wanda Maximoff as well. Uh, so I'd be interested to know your take on that, DJ. And I know that we are not a Marvel podcast, because there's plenty of those out there, and that's not necessarily what we do. But I just want to know, now that you've finally seen Endgame, I'm going to ask you this question. Did you do it? Hmm. That's not ringing a bell to me at all. Okay, I guess this is technically from Infinity War. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yes. yes, yes. Okay, I remember that from Infinity War. Let's yes. try it again. Yes, what? Okay, yeah, yeah. Did you do it? Yes. What did it cost? Everything. That is, is such an incredible ending to that film. <laughs> and then when he's just walking through his garden, I'm like, wow, they really did it. I had heard that they might do it, and I didn't know if they would, but they did it. And I'm glad they did. <laughs> I remember when I saw that at midnight in the theaters, I had to walk home, DJ. I, <laughs> and you know the town I was in. I probably should not have walked home at like 2 yeah, in the no, morning. You, should, you probably shouldn't have. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but I had to clear my head. I had to just <laughs> walk through downtown, walk through all these little blocks and just clear my head because it was it was incredible. And so then a year later when we got Endgame, I was in a different region of the country and a different job. A lot of my life had changed, but I was ready for the continuation of the Avengers story. And so, again, I saw it at midnight as well, and it was incredible. And now, DJ, we, we've beat around the bush plenty, but tell me, what do you think, having finished now the Infinity War saga, what do you think? It's hard to really tell you what I think, because I don't know what spoilers are and what aren't. I mean, some people could say, oh, it's been out for three years. Um, unfortunately for me, most of the major plot points had already been spoiled. So the movie was more of a, okay, how did we get here? How did this particular thing happen to this character? Oh, okay. This, this is all starting to make sense now. I am um, Groot. <laughs> I, I think, I think it was an okay movie. I think some of the... There's so many spots in the movie where it's like, oh, they're all lined up perfectly so they can get the shot of of all of the Avengers in this one thing. And like <laughs> there's there's the point at the end of the movie where they do kind of a pan or I don't know if you call it a pan, but they go through everybody and it's like, oh, yep, they're all together in their little groups. We got to show show this, you know, one more time. Um, it was fine. There's to me, there's a, a huge plot hole sort of. I don't know if it's a plot hole, but I had one big thing that stuck out to me and I was telling my friend about this and he gave me an explanation and I'm like, okay, but that just seems like a cop out for me. Give it to me. Okay. So uh, if you have not seen these movies, I'm going to give you three or four seconds to skip ahead. Here is your pause. I think for me, at least, at least to me, at the end of infinity war, I was kind of feeling a little hopeless. I was like, Oh my goodness. Like, Thanos is unbeatable. I mean, what are they going to have to do? They're going to have to do something stupid to beat him. And then I watched a little movie called Captain Marvel, which at the end of Captain Marvel, I was like, oh, yeah, this is so easy. Like, this is the answer. Like, she is literally the most powerful thing to ever exist. But once she comes in Endgame at the very beginning, 
you're I'm pumped. I'm like, oh my goodness, she is gonna wipe the floor with Thanos. She's gonna be like unstoppable. It's basically like just gonna be an all-out battle. But they're like, she's like, no, I have to go and fix all the everything that he made terrible and all the other planets and all the other universes besides yours. And I just hated that. It was like, come on. Like, you could easily have just stopped him quickly, and this could have been over. And I'm supposed to believe Doctor Strange that there are over 7 billion different outcomes. Only one of them ends with them winning. And so, and only, it's like there's no reality in which Captain Marvel stuck around. Now, I did hear an interesting conspiracy on this as to why Doctor Strange said this. Once I was told this, I was thinking, oh, okay, now, now I believe this. I, I believe why he said that to Tony Stark. Well, I think that when he said there was only one outcome in which they won, that means winning by bringing back the people that they want to bring back without losing what they have in terms of Morgan Stark and things like that. I imagine that there were degrees of success that they would have probably seen as not success. So I don't know if that's an excuse that you were given, but that's how I generally understand it. The excuse I was, I wouldn't say, I don't know if it's excuse, but it's, it's a line where she just says, oh, there's other universes beside yours. Um, I have to well, go make other sure. planets, galaxies, we haven't unlocked the multiverse yet. <laughs> yeah. But you know, like, okay, that's, that's a good cop out, I suppose. But the conspiracy I heard was that Dr. Strange specifically wanted Tony to die. And so there was only one outcome in which everyone survives, literally everybody, and Tony dies because he's, in Dr. Strange's mind, too dangerous to be kept alive. And that's why he never tells. What? He's like, if I tell you if we win, it, it won't happen. Uh, I, I'm not buying that. Oh. Where are you getting this? Was this your friend saying this, that he wanted Tony Stark dead? My friend, who is an avid listener of this podcast, said that there is a theory, it's a Reddit theory, that a lot of people subscribe to. Hmm. And once he told me that, I was, I was actually fine with the movie. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, that makes perfect sense, because he is pretty, like, not dangerous but also it's like well he created ultron so that is fair we might have to have him on here to debate this that'd be very yeah, interesting it, it, would, it would be interesting <laughs> and it's like my wife is telling me who's a film nut and, and really into this stuff she's like oh yeah it makes of course tony has to die he has the lowest stakes of anyone dying like if if some of these the characters they killed were the top three characters that didn't have high stakes at all like they don't really have families i mean yes tony has a family but it's like can you imagine if that movie was over and, like, Black Panther died or if Ant-Man died or if Spider-Man was really dead? Like, it just wouldn't go. Like, people would just quit. So it's kind of like a video game. You have to get people to keep playing. You have to get people to keep watching. The three characters, main characters that died, their stories were basically over. Wait, who was the third person that died? Black Widow and Captain America. Captain America, well, I don't know if he's dead. He, he's he just didn't die, but retired. he's done. He's, he's just done. He's, he's basically dead. He's at the golf country club or whatever, just existing. Well, at this point, he's tea. like 90 years old. So, I mean, he's in grid health, as we've seen. But, you know, so those are my takes. I thought, honestly, Infinity War was by far the better movie. Now, when I first saw Infinity War, I was initially disappointed that we never got 
everybody together. And I know that's part of me, just a, a fan wanting that, but I realized then why they did it so serially, episodically, how they had distinct spheres of battle, yes. uh, of war. They had the space stuff going on, the Earth stuff going on, and everything in between as well. Uh, and when we finally, finally did get the portal scene at the end of Endgame, ooh, that was something. I remember seeing that in the theaters and everybody losing their minds, which usually I would not like because I like my cinema experience to be sophisticated and reserved and calm, British per se. But when it's those events like that, you, part of the reason why you go to a busy theater to see something like that is to, to feel the energy. I'm not someone that would hoot and holler and scream when uh, Captain America picked up the Mjolnir, but I remember feeling the energy of the crowd just saying, yeah, wow, woo. <laughs> and that elevated the experience to me, and I'm going to remember that. And I always love occasionally when I see uh, a bootleg clip of that in the theaters, and, they, and the crowd just loses their mind when that happens, or, or moments like that happen. Um, when I saw Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, it was a pretty big release day for that too and there was the energy of the crowd i'm not going to tell you what happened dj but it was great to have other people in the theater for that i'm excited to watch the rest i'm the type of person that would say you can't really have an opinion on this stuff if you haven't sat down and actually watched it you can't listen to rotten tomatoes you can't listen to imdb you need to actually give it a go and then see what you think but you know i'm excited for the rest of them and you know Endgame was great because I got a little bit of one of my favorite characters. Um, I actually can't remember his name now. He's from Ragnarok. He's the big rock guy. Korg. Yes. Um, I love him. So it was it was great to get that. And I loved, according to the subtitles, Smart Hulk. Um, that character yeah. was just <laughs> awesome. The first time you see him in his cardigan, it's just so funny. Um, that's that's good humor. I Marvel has a lot of humor they try, and I think it like, ah, eh, okay. But like that, that's some good humor there. Yeah, I am looking forward to She-Hulk coming out at the end of this summer. Another yes. series out there. Uh, I guess to close up the Endgame talk, the one thing that that movie really left me wanting for was more information about that stew that Thanos was cooking on the planet before he was decapitated. Yes. Yes. I mean, he had these little <laughs> pineapple-like alien plant things that he had picked up, and it, it was almost asmeric. It was really nice to see him just chop it up, put it together. I would have wanted to see more of that. And personally, I know that the story could not have been served by that, but uh, it looked delicious, and I wish that we could have seen more and maybe even gotten a recipe for that. And tell me what you think, but I think that movie and Infinity War, um, to bring it back to amusement stuff, I don't think you could ever have any sort of ride based on those storylines. I think it's all going to be kept within each character's ecosystem or world, if you could say, or universe, because it's just too dark. Yeah, I, I think realistically as well, it'd be impossible to get that many actors together for a ride film or something like that. It just wouldn't make sense for them. But I think with the announced and sort of shelved Avengers e-ticket attraction that was 
announced for Disney California Adventure and then is sort of maybe not happening, probably isn't going to happen, they had described it as a Quinjet-style attraction, which to me seems like a spiritual successor to Star Tours, where you go in the Quinjet doing something, flying through Wakanda, a little bit of havoc happens that you are a passenger for along the way, and then the heroes come and save the day. Uh, So that's what I would interpret that attraction as looking like, and maybe there'd be different destinations, maybe there'd be some repeatability in that sense, much like Star Tours, but uh, I don't think we're ever going to see it anytime anytime soon, unfortunately. Well, we can put a pin in this. We will reconvene after my viewings of WandaVision, after my viewings of Loki, after my viewings of Insert series here. (laughs) I am really excited to actually get into the other two Spider-Man now, or Spider-Men. Far From Home, I've been through a little bit of it, and then um, whatever the new one is, I can't remember the name. No Way Uh, Home. No Way Home. Oh, like that. I I did enjoy the first Spider-Man, so we'll see how that goes. And of course, the new Doctor Strange and Eternals and all of those. Yeah, I look forward to hearing more about that. But DJ, it is our 72nd episode. You know, maybe by the end of the year, we might even have 100. Wouldn't that be something? Uh, but for this 72nd episode, we uh, we brought back a, a segment. I almost called it a bit, but it's not a bit. It's a segment. Uh, mm-hmm. Because we are now at a point in the podcast where if we were to highlight a roller coaster that opened in 1972... For our 72nd episode, it would be a coaster worth highlighting. I know we had had some difficulties in running this segment through the 30s and 40s and some of the 50s as well, but we are back to it now. So, DJ, it is time that we pick out a coaster to highlight that opened in 1972. Let's get to RCDB. Let's get to RCDB. Here is the sound of my keyboard clacking, clack, 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 as we open up. The 1972 roller coaster. This is a big one. Uh, this ride is actually celebrating its 50th anniversary this year, along with the park that it existed at, it was built at, is celebrating its 50th anniversary. Chris, we're talking about the King's Island Racer. Ooh, yeah. Because I, I think, DJ, that 1972 is what many would be uh, considering as the beginning of the Coaster Wars. And I think the racer is a major catalyst for that, uh, because this is around the time where lots of regional parks are popping up. We had the Taft Broadcasting Parks. Uh, Six Flags had a a couple of parks by this point as well, and these parks needed attractions. Uh, And they learned what is still true today, uh, which is a simple tenet, but it is when it comes to new capital in the minds of the public at uh, an amusement park, whatever else, you cannot beat a shiny new roller coaster. It doesn't matter if you spend double the money on an incredible new attraction, but it's a flat ride or a dark ride, which could even objectively be a better ride experience. The public cares about roller coasters, uh, which can be limiting and unfortunate sometimes, but it's what people quantify the park experience by. If it's an incredible park, but it has two coasters, and then you have a maybe a, a lesser park down the road, maybe sharing a market, but they have more roller coasters, 
a lot of people are going to value the experience at the park that has more roller coasters as higher than the other park. It's just how it goes. Am I right about this, DJ? You're 100% right. And most folks, uh, dear listener, not sure which category you fall in, but most folks, I would think, look at that number. Well, I can spend X amount of dollars here for this many coasters, or I can spend X amount of dollars here for this many coasters. And it just it makes more sense to them from a financial perspective. They don't look at the quality of the rides. They don't look at the quality of the experience. Now, granted, there are some that do that. But like you said, Chris, they're looking at the coasters. They love a new coaster. That's what brings the money in. That's what brings the guests in. And, you know, not only do you get a shiny new roller coaster everyone loves, I mean, we, I mean, we look at things like even new pavers. We look at things like, oh, a nice new control board, nice new queue. Um, sometimes you have a small themed area with a new ride. So there's a lot to think about. And, you know, really that, that new coaster almost always falls into the marketing plan of these parks that use this coaster as an anchor throughout the entire year to get people to visit time and time again, or ultimately what's most important, buy a season pass and get them coming back. Yeah. Over the years with these uh, coaster wars that we just briefly touched on, the coasters got bigger and better as parks tried to promote their new purchases with superlatives. This is the tallest coaster in the mid-Atlantic or... This is the first dive coaster in California. Things like that. There are combinations of them. This is the world's first launch stand-up coaster or surf coaster. We will see what superlatives they put together with that. Um, but it's something that has survived to this day. Even if the coaster wars are not necessarily booming still, uh, I think we could probably quantify the end of the coaster wars with Topsville Dragster in 2003, I think, maybe even Intimidator 305 in 2010. But parks aren't necessarily spending as much on bigger and badder coasters. We'll still get a Fury 325 every decade or so, but we're not seeing the expansion and, and building that we saw for the decades previously. Part of that is because these parks are built out in a lot of cases, and so they have to get more creative with what they add. They have to add a nine-inversion sit-down coaster and, and get that support of theirs, the most inversions in North America. Uh, referring to Stu Curtin and Kennywood. Uh, so if they can't build up or out, they have to build smarter. And I think that means an end of the coaster wars that we have seen over the last decade or so. Uh, but while these superlatives have survived, we can trace them back to the racer and the 70s, because just a couple of years after that, we'd get the inversion back in the steel coaster with Corkscrew at Knott's Berry Farm. And then even, I think, seven years after the racer, we got something called The Beast, and uh, we can't talk about that much today because it's not the 79th episode, but I think it's safe to say that we have our coaster picked out for episode <laughs> 79 as well. Spoilers. Spoilers. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think, I think you're, you're totally right. You're hitting everything, the nail on the head there. Um, I'm wondering now if parks really are doing research, guest surveys to find that People are really valuing experiences over superlatives. For instance, they might value a smoother ride, but also they're taking into consideration, okay, here are these parks that have these gigantic rides and looking at you, Top Thrill Dragster, we're down for a whole year. You know, how long can these rides last? Can they operate every day? How many people can they pump through? And I think that's becoming um, just as important, if not more important than some of those superlatives. So I think that's why you're seeing maybe more of an investment in just, I call it with quotations, quotation marks around it, 
normal coasters or at least things that aren't breaking that speed and height barrier anymore. It's more of something unique it does or just have being a great ride experience in general. Right. Yeah. The racer, it turns out, was one of the last projects with involvement by John C. Allen from the Philadelphia Tobacco Company before his retirement. Uh, he'd retired right around that time, but he did have some involvement with the racer as well as Woodstock Express. Well, what is currently named Woodstock Express at Kings Island in Kings Dominion and then Racer 75 at Kings Dominion as well. Uh, those were some of his last projects with involvement. Uh, but I would say, DJ, and tell me if I'm wrong, I would say that the racer was a, if it's not an inflection point, it was a major milestone for roller coasters and the experiences they gave uh, because this was sort of the end of the old guard where we had the old PTC coasters that were mainly out and back layouts and they had high turnarounds that were generally unbanked before you came back around um, and fast forward to seven years later and we have the beast which is almost a, a world different in terms of design and and then go 10 years after that and well coasters are nearly unrecognizable from what they were just a, a couple years a couple decades previously so i think the racer is very important in the telling of the roller coaster story uh, and i think that's why we highlighted it here today could you run me through the stats dj Absolutely. And I encourage you, dear listener, to go back to a recent episode. I visited Kings Island, got a ride on the racer this year in 2022, got to experience all the great work that the Gravity Group has done on that ride to really bring it back to its glory. Um, always enjoyed it, though. This is a racing coaster. You saw more of these back in the day. We're kind of getting a revitalization of these, but a racing coaster. Each side is 3,415 feet long, uh, 88 feet tall, both of these rides. Um, actually, though, they do get up to 53 miles an hour on both sides, which is a pretty impressive speed for a coaster now 50 years old. Um, it's two minutes on either side. Um, when w I rode this previously this year, I would I was also happy to report that the ride was racing, so that was great. Um, man, it just it it rides great. Um, sometimes I think people think of these rides, their experience they might have had on it years ago, as what all wood coasters are like, and so they swear them off. No, I'm not riding that that rough thing, or don't get me on that. It looks rickety and old and. Uh, the racer just goes to show that you can have something that's 50 years old and still be, in my opinion, top five coaster in that park. Well, I think, DJ, that there is an unfair perception around wooden coasters in general. Uh, and maybe it's because of experiences that a lot of the public has had at wooden coasters here and there. But I'm thinking back to a time in 2017 when I was visiting Busch Gardens Williamsburg and they had just opened Invader, which was a, uh, a relatively small, concise GCI coaster. It's a great ride, and it's in that sweet spot of wooden coaster where it's not super tall, so it's really a smooth, easy ride. And of course, there can be wooden coasters with um, larger drops and higher profiles that are smooth as well. But when you get to that small stature of wooden coaster, and I think that's what a lot of Gravity Group and GCI coasters are built at, where they have drops of between 50 and 80 feet, it's because they consistently stay a smooth, enjoyable, light-hearted romp through the layout. Uh, but that being said, back to 2017, 
I was waiting by the exit, I think, and I remember hearing some guy get off the coaster and he had met his family who I guess didn't want to ride some of it didn't some of their group didn't want to ride and uh, the family said oh how was it and he said oh you were right it was good but it was rough and <laughs> I had ridden it that day too and it was certainly not rough so I don't know what goes on in the heads of some people but when they see a wooden coaster it might be unfairly so that they think, oh, wooden coaster, it's going to have to be rough, purely because it feels different than a steel coaster experience, because we have different wheel composition, different track, naturally. And I don't know how you beat that perception that has been in the heads of so many of the public for so long. Even though you can have things like um, some of the RMC coasters or uh, the Intamin prefabricated coasters a lot of the time too, where it is just as smooth as steel coasters and in fact oftentimes a lot smoother than many steel coasters out there. And there's a lot of things that could go into what makes a coaster smooth versus not smooth. But some of these wooden coasters I would put ahead of a lot of steel coasters. And Invader was perfectly smooth. It was the first year it had opened. It's a small GCI, so it's pretty well with uh, the smoothness throughout the ride. And uh, I just don't know how you beat it, because I know that we love new wooden coasters, but I don't know how to beat the perception sometimes that the public has that a wooden coaster is automatically lesser or rough. And I don't like it. Yeah, I think rough is a word that you ask someone, well, what do you mean by it being rough? Uh, they need to expound more on what they think. Okay, is it is it bumpy? Is it jostly? Is it just not like gloss? Is it noisy? And you're, you're thinking these noises are contributing to this quote-unquote roughness? Um, it's definitely something to think about. And yeah, I, I think there are, the racer is one of the smoother rides at the whole park of Kings Island. You know, like you said, I can point to many steel coasters that are quote unquote rougher than the racer. And, you know, for someone who might have, maybe they grown up in that area, Kings Island is all they know. I mean, I guess I could see why they would say that, but you know, you and I, Chris, and some of you at home, dear listener, you might be thinking, Oh, well, here's a scratch pad of 30 coasters you need to ride and then call me back the next week and tell me <laughs> about your ride on the racer. Um, there are parks and fans of those parks that would kill to have the treatment that was done on the racer um, actually that be done to it. And I'm really happy 50 years later, as much as I love RMCs, they're great rides. I, I love that 50 years later, this is still the racer. And I think that's a testament to the park. And there has to be something in Cincinnatians for them to want to keep this ride around as well. You have to imagine someone's son wrote it, their daughter wrote it, granddaughter, grandson. Now we might be onto the greats eventually. Um, it's really kind of a, almost a rite of passage for that culture. Yes. And I do think that Kings Island in particular has a fan base that a lot of parks would be very jealous of. They have I don't know exactly what it is about Cincinnati, but they love Kings Island from what I understand. Uh, how there there's so many people that, like you said, have various rides at Kings Island be a rite of passage. And whenever I've gone to Kings Island, the, the couple of times that I've been, it's always been so packed of people just going there. And, and they have unique things about Kings Island, like 
counting the rides that they have. I know that Don Helbig and many others count the rides that they have on various coasters, and it's in the tens of thousands. It's incredible. Uh, but Kings Island, there's just something different about that park uh, of of how the, the people love it in the area and what the park does for them as well. Uh, so it's definitely a very special place, and uh, more so even because it has the racer and the legacy that the racer has in roller coaster history. And I want to make a quick shout-out before we wrap up this segment. It's not a bit. It is a segment um, with a similar ride that's also in the same park that opened 72, now called Woodstock Express. Over the years, it's been called the Fairly Odd Coaster. It was the Beastie for, like, 25 years, but originally Scooby-Doo in 1972, another John Allen-designed wooden coaster. Um, Dear listener, if you ever get to Kings Island, do not skip this ride. It's extremely historic. The ride still has what we call buzz bars, Um, It has a very interesting wheel design, uh, a lot different from modern wooden roller coasters. And happy to say, too, they've done some great work on that ride. Very enjoyable. This is a much smaller ride, 35 miles an hour. It's for the whole family, but uh, you can't miss that one either. Yeah, it's a great ride, much like the Woodstock Express at King's Dominion as well. It's in that sweet spot where you're just gliding over the track, and it's it's a great ride as well. Well, DJ, that is the historic coaster of the episode that we're highlighting. What do you have for me? Because I know that you put something else in this outline that I'm very curious about. Yeah, we I alluded to it, talked about a challenge. A challenge, you say? A challenge? I would like to participate in a challenge. This is a yearly challenge um, done by um, a certain group that I always look forward to. I, I love to see what people come up with. It's something I debated entering this year. I'm glad I didn't after I saw what was announced. Um, And let me explain to you what I mean by that. So the challenge we're talking about is something called five hours of power. Have you heard of this, Chris? I've briefly heard of it, but I don't know a lot about it. This is five hours of power eight. So this is the eighth year of five hours of power. It is kind of an, it's an event that's basically sponsored or put on by no limits roller coaster simulator. Um, So this no limits i should explain is really the the closest that we as lay people can get to roller coaster simulation i would say without getting into solid works and all that sort of thing and coming up with your own renderings um and i say this because no limits is now even used by many professional companies to show the public what a coaster will be when it's announced. Um, there are many examples of this happening. And interestingly, there are a few companies that actually work with No Limits Roller Coaster Simulation to put their own cars um, into the simulator, whether that's to A, let folks experiment with what could be that doesn't exist, or B, let parks or these companies easily show uh, in proposals and that sort of thing what could be at their parks. Companies like Gerschlauer, Mock, Gravity Group, and the fourth here, RMC. There's some others. I believe Vacoma's another one on there. Um, but these companies have let No Limits basically draw up schematics for these rides, and you can simulate them. They have some others in there, um, things that are obviously a B&M sit-down, for instance, but they don't call it a B&M. It's called, like, Twister Roller Coaster, things like that. But... What was really interesting is I think this was the first year, this is the eighth year they've done it, that No Limits actually worked with one of these companies to come up with a challenge. So they worked with Rocky Mountain Construction, RMC, to tell folks, hey, we want you to RMC Son of Beast. 
And I wonder if our episode with Drew the Intern, uh, where we planned the future and planned a park for Kings Island, uh, where this came up about let's RMC the old beast, uh, maybe that spurred something. We'll, we'll go ahead and think that, Chris. We'll, we'll, we'll assume that maybe they we put a nugget in their ear or something like that. Well, I would like to let the record show that I was wanting to talk you two down from Arab seeing the beast. And actually, I did propose that significant reprofiling was done on points of the beast to be able to allow it to operate in a way that it maybe hadn't done for decades. And, oh, what happened this past offseason? <laughs> huh. We unleashed the beast. <laughs> I believe that's what they oh, used, yeah. right? Didn't they have that in the park, Unleash the I Beast? I think that was on the sign. So <laughs> great minds think alike. Uh, great very minds true. think alike. Very uh, true. So, yeah, yeah. So it, it's incredible. I know that when people were looking at Son of Beast just sitting there for years and RMC was just coming onto the scene, they had just done New Texas Giant, and everybody immediately looked at Son of Beast. And I know we've heard different things here and there, rumors like, oh, they could have never RMC'd Son of Beast, or oh, it would be $40 million, <laughs> and maybe it could have. But it ultimately didn't happen that they RMC'd Son of Beast, and it never happened because they demolished that coaster, they sent me a piece of track, as I usually do mention, <laughs> And the rest is history. We got Banshee in its space. But we have to wonder, DJ, if RMC had gone in to do an Iron Horse conversion of Son of Beast, what would it, what would it look like? And I think that is what they were looking for in the five hours of power. Yes, this was the question they posed, and just a very quick recap of this ride. If you don't know, dear listeners, Son of Beast was the next coaster at Kings Island to follow the Beast's footprint. The Beast is still the longest wooden coaster. Son of Beast, when it was open, was the tallest, fastest wooden roller coaster ever opened. It was also the only one at the time with an inversion. Uh, it, didn't, it lasted long, actually. I say it didn't last long. It, that ride was around for 10 years, uh, and then it went into standing but not operating status, uh, and then it was ultimately demolished. But it still has a following. If you ride Banshee at Kings Island, if you're in the queue, you'll even see a gaslit flame that's in homage to Son of Beast, always in our hearts forever. Um, but that's what we got with this challenge. And so you may ask, why is it called Five Hours of Power? Well, essentially, No Limits opens this up to anyone with the game. They are able to compete in this contest where you have five hours to build a certain coaster. And so there were different um, rules, different variables around what you had to do. Um, but once that download file was opened, you had five hours to design the ride, to come up with the supports, to submit it, to even fill out a form to submit it, to make sure it downloads correctly. So you got to have all your eggs in, 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 the, in the right basket, right? Everything's got to be all lined up to do this. Um, some of the stipulations I thought were interesting. There are two different RMC styles in No Limits Simulator, so they have the classic RMC, then they also have the launched RMC, which would be Lightning Rod with a headrest, so clearly there they are saying you could do a launched version of this if you wanted to. Uh oh. Um, but they were given a separate outline, which was the support and track footprint of Son of Beast, so they went pretty deep into this. They basically said, here are the exact footprints of this ride. You could not change, modify, or move this Son of Beast recreation. Um, you had basically a base outline you couldn't move. You can't move any of the terrain because it's supposed to be, here it is at King's Island, right? Here's where you're supposed to build. If this was a real RMC, you couldn't mess 
too much with the supports. I mean, we've seen RMC add supports to existing structures and maybe go a little bit out there um, and add some new supports even, but you got to keep that in mind. Uh, and where this really gets interesting, and this shows you how deep that this No Limits roller coaster simulator is, you had to also have adequate storage for all of the trains, so just as if it were a real ride. Um, you had to have adequate clearance, so you couldn't have people bumping into things, and not even that. You had to make sure if folks raised their hands, they wouldn't get their hands uh, hit on the support structure. That's important. Um, your coaster had to follow the footprint of Son of Beast, and it looked like it's reusing as much of the original support structure as possible, so when judging comes into hand, that's something that's subjective, obviously. Um, no Limits has this thing called an auto-support generator, which is specifically for wooden coasters, um, because... In, I encourage you to look this up if you haven't heard of this, dear listener, but if you were to make a wood coaster without that support generator, you would have to build every single piece of wood to support that ride and make it all straight and look nice. Um, so that's almost a given, like you have to use that. Uh, you could also add as many inversions as you like. So if you wanted to add more than the one, you could. If you even wanted to keep the normal vertical loop around, as some folks did, you could have done that. Coaster had to run a minimum of three trains, which is what Son of Beast operated. Um, and below ground tunnels were allowed, so we didn't have that on Son of Beast, but you could add tunnels if you wanted to. And finally, you had a yellow border area that you were given inside of the simulator. You couldn't go beyond that, and that was to avoid interfering with other rides, scenery that aren't visible in that park in No Limits, but would be in real life, per se. Wow, that sounds very... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Specific. Very <laughs> specific, yes. Uh, and, it's, and that's because that's part of the fun, is being able to work within a set of constraints that they give you. Now, DJ, how did these projects happen? Like, I assume the five hours of power have already elapsed, uh, how are they judged? Do we have a winner yet? And can we watch the coasters? So five hours of power, I kind of alluded to this a little bit ago. They open this download link when the contest begins. Um, they're usually on No Limits' Twitter, on their Facebook, all their social media, their Instagram. They even have a forum. Um, they kind of tell people when it's coming, get ready. They'll post an hour before saying, okay, you know, be ready. We're going to post the rules in an hour. Um, so then once that time starts, they can download um, the park I was talking about that has the original Son of Beast in it. Um, they're given the rules that I just told you. <laughs> they're given the rules right then, so they don't have any pre-time to go over those rules. And then they've got five hours. Once the five hours elapses, um, this is all across the world, by the way. Um, once the five hours elapse, they got to turn in everything, have the form filled out saying what they're doing, show where to download the track. So, you know, you have to count. That's at least 20, 25 minutes of your five hours to do that. Um, this is judged on a variety of things. I mean, it's obviously subjective, but I would say the coaster world is subjective. The amusement industry is subjective. What makes a ride good? They look at things like realism. That means the forces you use, the track shaping, coaster operations. That could be the amount of people pushing through. Um, they look at the supports themselves. So they call out things like support adequacy. So could this actually support the track in real life? Is the clearance there? Uh, how does the design look from a subjective point? Uh, the density, how many supports do you have? Does this look realistic? Does it look like something RMC would do? Um, then a third thing they judge, which I think is funny. It's just called fun, um, but that's a good way to describe it. The pacing of the ride. How creative was your layout? Is there enough variety? Is it too stale? What's the flow? Pacing is one of those words that I think coaster enthusiasts 
think about, but they don't really describe it when they say a ride's good. Usually it's because I would say the pacing is good. Um, are you doing every element back and forth, back and forth? Are you getting bored? That's what comes into fun. And finally, this one actually might be my favorite judging criteria or criterion, and that would be RMC-ness. So is it like an RMC? That's really hard to explain. What does an RMC do that other coasters don't do? Um, that's what's really interesting about this. And we don't know who the judges are yet because this is a, it takes time for them to judge this sort of thing. They have to get work around people's work schedules. I mean, this is just for fun, right? Uh, but they have claimed that there are judges all around the industry. They'll probably reveal that soon. Um, I would mention, though, that RMC on Twitter had said how excited they were to see some of these designs. So we know that at least RMC is going to see these designs. Um, it's hard to say whether Alan Schilke or Fred Grubb or somebody's going to have a, a look at judging these, but we do know that they did partner with No Limits to do this, so I'm sure they will see some of these designs. Right, and I'm sure they can acknowledge it because that coaster is gone and there's no chance that it could actually happen. So there's no conflict of interest or anything like that as well. But mentioning the RMC-ness category of judging, that might actually be very tough because I think that RMC coasters have gotten more RMC-ness as they've gone on. Look at the new Texas Giant. Mm -hmm. No inversions, I think it was 95 degree overbank turns and still an incredible ride. But compare that to the layout of Zadra or Iron Guazi or Steel Vengeance and they are entirely different. So I would be very interested to see the balance that people take. If if RMC were to have RMC'd Son of Beast, it probably would have been something closer to an Iron Rattler or a New Texas Giant or a Outlaw Run compared to these crazy layouts that we're getting now. So I wonder if that'll play into the realism of it or the RMC-ness of it, uh, but I'm very interested to see these videos. Yeah, and if you want to see these videos, I mean, you can obviously jump on No Limits 2 Coaster Simulator on Twitter. They post a lot of stuff there. Yeah, you know, I will actually say they have one of the better Facebook accounts I've seen out of sort of similar veined things, amusement industry. Theirs is really good. They they post a lot of videos there and some news. Um, and we've actually seen what some of these look like right now, um, looking at different submissions that have come in. There is one from Pool Coaster Guy, at Pool Coaster Guy. Uh, his version uses... Uh, this typical steel lattice construction you've seen on Zadra, Iron Gwazi, um, doing what looks like a straight down drop into an absolutely nuts, like 90 degree turn into a huge bunny hop down, but he kept that iconic loop. Um, and I've heard different interviews where Alan Schilke, who designs these for RMC, says, we'll never see vertical loops. It just doesn't work with the track type, but this is for fun, right? So it's cool to see the loop itself, but that's where you have to wonder, Chris, with the RMC in his comment, you know, are you going to get, are you going to get some sort of mark for doing that? Because there is no RMC with a vertical loop. Can you go that far out and say, oh, well, maybe they, they did it here. Well, we have Raven turns and almost implement loops, I think, in some RMC coasters, but were I to have done this challenge, I would not have included the vertical loop, because I don't think that it is an effective element for a coaster like this. RMCs are so great because of the rolls that they have and the airtime that they have, and so it's mixtures of that that I think they 
should have in a coaster like this. I don't know necessarily yet what I would have put in that spot, but it would definitely have to be very visually striking. Maybe it would be a series of zero-g rolls. Maybe it would be track interacting with other track. I don't know yet, but it would not have been a vertical loop if I were doing it. Well, it's interesting to hear that. I think that's fair. Um, you're right. It's like maybe a corkscrew would be more conducive, which is essentially a loop, you know, pulled on either side. Um, there was someone named at Joseph Pojunas or Pojunas. Uh, he put in two lift hills, or it looks like two launches maybe, and two vertical loops. <laughs> um, and there was someone named um, Coaster Joe's, Chomp Eastwood stand account or something, Coaster at Coaster Joe's. Um, his looks more like a Hakuge or an Iron Gwazi sort of color scheme. Um, but he he puts this well. Um, this challenge let me express what I love about modern RMCs. And I think that's a good bow to put on this little bit that we did, uh, this little piece of news. That's really what this is for, to love, share the love of coasters, share your vision, um, just have fun. Here's five hours. And, you know, I think this emulates probably what happens in the real world. You show up to maybe a trade show, you're a roller coaster company, and... X company says, here's what we're looking for, and you've got a day to turn around an entire proposal, and they'll see you tomorrow at 8 a.m. to see what you've come up with. Huh. I hadn't considered that. I wonder if, wow, that's probably very difficult. Yeah. That's, that's <laughs> awesome. But, DJ, I think with some of my favorite designs that I have personally done on No Limits, um, it's when I have been taking what was and making it my own. Something that stands out is Drock and Fire. Uh, but as a B&M coaster, I know we hear the lore, the rumors that Drakenfire was originally supposed to be B&M. Uh, so I would take the actual layout of the coaster as it existed, but then draw from Kumba and other B&Ms of that era to create what I thought the Drakenfire layout would be. And that's one of the most favorite designs that I've ever done, uh, because the challenge is to work within those constraints, but also bring your own imagination to it, and it's really fun. And I imagine that's what that original conversation was. Arrow saying, oh, yeah, we can do that, and then they go back to their headquarters. Okay, how are we going to do this? <laughs> <laughs> Well, DJ, this has been great to discuss No Limits design challenges and the racer, which I think itself would be an interesting design challenge. I remember hearing a couple years ago back a wild rumor of American Eagle or something at Six Flags Great America, um, which is a similar racing coaster, but keeping the wooden coaster side on one end and then putting a RMC hybrid design on the other side. <laughs> and I don't Why? know if that would even be possible. <laughs> I don't know if it would be worth it or even good, but that might be a fun challenge at some point <laughs> to design what that would look like and still have it race because those would be very different designs. But DJ, it's been great to discuss these with you. And we've had some pretty fun episodes before this one as well. Uh, just last episode, we had The Venetian Merchant and the River King, in which we talked about the city of Venice and what's going on there and how they are learning from theme parks and hotels and airfare to save that city from itself. Uh, we also talked about your visit, your venture to the city of Sin, Cincinnati, that is, <laughs> where we talked about your trip report to Kings Island and many other fun attractions in Cincinnati, Ohio. I think it's ironic we haven't talked about my actual trip to the city of Sin, Las Vegas. I didn't do anything 
coaster related, but maybe that'll be an episode here in the future. We also had an interview with Michael Graham. He's over at the Gravity Group. They're responsible for some of the coasters we've been talking about, uh, retracking of the Beast, uh, retracking of the Racer, some other great uh, work that they do. But he really took us into a deep dive into the company, what it means to be a coaster design company and what exactly it is he does as an engineer. And we also had a more nostalgic, reflective episode, DJ in the Lost City, where I took us through Celebration City, uh, what was very, almost, I don't know, just weird. Like, we did that episode, and then within two weeks, uh, there was an announcement there would be a large auction at Celebration City. Um, Sarah Carnes, as an author of a, a specific article on this from the Springfield Newsleader, uh, we retweeted her link. Um, you should check that out um, because it was very interesting to get her take and some interviews she did with some folks as they let people come into the park um, as they did this essentially liquidation sale. Wow, that's incredible how sometimes timings just line up. Uh, but that's a lot of fun, DJ. Those are some of the recent episodes that we've had. So if you are a new listener to Corkscrew Convos, welcome. Thank you for stopping by. Uh, my voice isn't always this raspy, uh, but that's just sometimes how it goes. That's showbiz, baby. But if you would like to have a Corkscrew conversation with us, there are many ways for you to do that. There certainly are. You can send us questions and we'll have a corkscrew conversation with you. You can reach out to us if you're more of a long form type of person. Email us, corkscrewcombos at gmail.com, or if a simple DM, a simple mention, a simple comment will suffice. Find us on really all of the social media outlets out there Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. We're on it all. We're trying to do content on each. TikTok, I've got some ideas, but as Chris said, these can't be rehearsed. I've, I've got to really think of them in the moment. So as they come to me, I try and get them on there. If there's really a reason to follow the show on each of the platforms, we've got some awesome photography from Chris over on Instagram. Every photo somehow gets better and better. Um, I'm just like, wow, this is, this is Chris. This is great. Um, and who knows? We've tossed around the idea of maybe putting some No Limits content ourselves on, on YouTube. Uh, maybe that's something you'd be interested in seeing. Maybe that's what it'll turn into. Chris and I aren't nearly as good as some of these five hours of power people, but maybe we can do something fun in the future there. If you'd like to help out the show, there is a very easy, cheap way to do that. Wait, <clears throat> did I say cheap? I meant free. There's a free way to do that, and that is by leaving a written five-star review on Apple Podcasts or leaving a five-star review on Spotify as well. It helps us to get the word out about the show and grow it as well. But until next time, my name is DJ. My name is Chris. And this has been another Corkscrew Convo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>